Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And joining us this week is Dr. Stephanie Alice Baker, who is a senior lecturer at the University of London and the author of Lifestyle Gurus, Constructing Authority and Influence Online. Thanks for joining us, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. I guess just to begin with, uh, could you tell us a little bit about your area of research and how you got into it? Yeah, sure. So around 2015, it was discovered that a very popular lifestyle and wellness guru, Bell Gibson, was a fraud. And at the time, there was a lot of discourse around, you know, did she have mental illness? What were the psychological reasons that this individual had cultivated this large online following? And ultimately, the whole thing had been a scam. And a co-author and I really were less interested in the psychological dimensions and much more interested in the broader social, political, economic and technological conditions that really enabled an individual with no expertise in health and wellness to achieve this degree of online authority. So that's how it began around 2015. We mostly focused really until about 2019 uh, on lifestyle and wellness influences and less on politics. And actually when we wrote Lifestyle Gurus, we did have a chapter on politics and the editor asked us to remove it. And then what occurred during the pandemic is that you saw much more of a crossover between the lifestyle wellness space and the political space. So previously there had been some crossover, particularly with the anti-vax movement, but this became much more prevalent. And what I noticed very early on, it was March actually uh, during the pandemic, was that the same techniques that Chris Rojek and I had identified lifestyle and wellness gurus using to achieve authority and influence online were being used by these savvy political influencers to spread misinformation and conspiracy. You recently published some research into a number of specific wellness influencers who had indulged in this conspirituality. Uh, Could you tell us about how you chose who to look at and what you found when you delved into their work? There was no shortage of people to study. Actually, the the most difficult part was narrowing it down in the article to four influences because there were just so many examples. Initially, actually, I didn't limit it to wellness influences and I focused actually on Pete Evans, but other influences who were less focused on wellness, so people like David Icke, I was also looking at Brian Rose, And then it became evident that for a journal article, it really needed to be more focused 
on the wellness space and this crossover. So that was when I pivoted and and kept Pete Evans, but really focused more on other wellness influencers such as David Avocado Wolf, uh, Sasha Stone, and Kelly Brogan. But as I mentioned earlier, there were no shortage. Actually, it was really difficult to decide which four to use. Something I'd noticed with Pete Evans's uh, descent into conspiracy was that yeah, at the beginning of the pandemic. His initial forays into posting that sort of content were more restricted. Uh, so you'd often only find them on his Instagram stories, whereas his regular feed was still, you know, lamb ragu, chicken cacciatore. And you'd have to go to the stories to see, uh, you know, Donald Trump's arresting the pedophiles. Do, do those sort of more intimate things like stories, are, are they often used in this way? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think you see actually quite a lot of diversity, not only in the way that specific platforms are used, but also the features, as you mentioned, with stories. So part of the reason that we see that is that Facebook in particular, but also Instagram that's owned by Facebook, are quite strict regarding uh, content moderation, especially medical misinformation during the pandemic. And a lot of this impetus is not something actually that a lot of the the tech companies have wanted to do, but there's been a lot of pressure from government. Uh, so you've seen a real crackdown. And as a result of that, what tends to happen is that it's the platforms like Telegram where there's much less uh, regulation, that people are quite prolific in how they communicate and, and with what they share, and it tends to be quite different from these more mainstream channels. But at the same time, as you alluded to with stories, we do still see this conspiratorial content and misinformation on stories. It does just tend to be on the more uh, sort of short-lived content such as stories or videos or or more cryptic as well, right, like using codes that that content moderators wouldn't necessarily know to look for. And and this has always been a, a, a kind of common technique used by the outright So commonly HH is a very common symbol that people use. But actually they're really savvy now, these influencers, with how they communicate. And because of the power of hashtags to be able to mobilise groups, uh, images as well, they are still using these more mainstream platforms to communicate. As I said, it does tend to be the more short-lived posts or also through images, memes, these images that tend to be more difficult for tech companies to regulate because, you know, they can they can disguise it in irony. It's interesting that you mentioned the codes. I saw a post today, an, an anti-vaxxer post that uh, was the most coded, it was so coded as to be incomprehensible uh, mm-hmm. to the reader, but somehow through some magic of machine learning, Facebook had determined that this is an anti-vax post and they put the little notice on it to say, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you can get information about COVID vaccines from the World Health Organization. It sort of struck me, though, that uh, all of this effort had gone into being able to correctly identify this as medical misinformation, and then not a lot was really being done about it. Uh, I, was, I was wondering how you felt the uh, the platforms were performing in terms of actually addressing these issues. It's been an interesting you know, process to watch, and I think everybody who studies misinformation and specifically medical misinformation would realise that the platforms can do a lot more, and I think most people get the impression that they're just doing enough to please uh, regulators or or to look as though they're making a concerted effort. So for those who don't know, basically what happened at the start of the pandemic is that the major tech platforms, uh, so this included LinkedIn, uh, Reddit, Facebook, Twitter, 
uh, among others, they all came together and it was quite unprecedented because usually there's not much cooperation, but they all worked together to say that we're, we're coming together to combat misinformation, right? Like this is our response to the pandemic. And they had two approaches. So the first was taking down content that would violate their policies and they all updated mostly their harm policies, focusing on what tends to be referred to as physical imminent harm. So what that means basically is that a post that would danger somebody imminently uh, in a physical way would be prioritised for removal. And that would be something obviously like drinking bleach, right, or somebody encouraging somebody to ingest something that would be seen as harmful. But the other approach that they took was to elevate what they refer to as authoritative content. And so that tends to be organizations like the World Health Organization, but it's also quite country specific. So it will be the local authorities, the local health authorities, public health authorities, in addition to these more global organizations. And they do that to say, look, there may be misinformation. We can't catch it all. It's a scale issue. But what we're always doing is that we're elevating this authoritative content so our users can click on these links and find the most up-to-date, accurate advice. But it doesn't take much uh, kind of critical analysis to realise that the groups that really need to be targeted are very unlikely to click on those links because they're distrusting institutional authority. And so that's the biggest critique I have is that all of this sounds very good. It sounds as though they're doing the right thing, but actually it's not targeting the people who really do need to be targeted. And actually this industry of out health influencers and very savvy anti-vaccine advocates who network online are really strategic, right? Like they are very aware in how they're communicating. They know how to influence people. And very much like the tobacco industry, they don't actually even need to convince people to be effective. They really just need to, you know, sow doubt. And so I don't think the tech platforms are doing enough, not least because they're, they're not targeting these groups specifically who need to be targeted, but also there's a lack of consistency in their approaches. And so what we found is that a lot of the most problematic influencers are deplatformed or suspended from one platform, but they'll still remain on another platform. Right? Or like I was alluding to before with memes, that type of content won't be taken down although it's actually arguably more persuasive than anything else, right? So I think much more needs to be done and we need to move away from these kind of traditional ways of approaching content moderation in terms of seeing it as limited to removal or deplatforming, though those aspects do have a place, and really working much more carefully at looking at how meaning is communicated online and how people can actually interject and intervene in that. Uh, Stephanie, could you tell us a bit about the persecuted hero narrative? I think you're referring to the article that I recently published on out-health influences. And so basically in that in that article, I was covering, as I mentioned earlier, for out-health influences and really looking at how they achieved authority uh, and influence online, but also how they were building a community and, and sustaining it over time. And there were three techniques that I identified after following these influencers very, very closely across multiple platforms for a year. And one of them was the persecuted hero narrative. And there tended to be this recurring technique where 
in response to threats of content moderation, especially when these influencers were posting what is perceived to be very harmful content, they would follow this trajectory where I identified five components. So the first was to suggest, like most conspiracies, that society is controlled by corrupt elites. And then what they would do is they would position themselves as not only exposing this corruption, but really using this kind of heroic narrative about revealing the truth, right, which other people are afraid to reveal, you know, these authorities are trying to conceal from the public. And then what they would claim as the fourth aspect is that they were being censored for doing so. And this was really important because it didn't just protect them as influencers. It was actually part of mobilising a following around this commitment to truth, freedom and justice. And this was recurring, as I mentioned. It was a really effective way that influencers would be able to build a very committed audience who saw themselves in in a battle, really, for freedom of speech, among other things. Speaking of community building and, um, I suppose, various forms of social cohesion, one of the things that struck me looking at the wellness industry and some of the figures associated with it, like Bell Gibson and others, is insofar as that's dedicated to creating alternative values or alternative lifestyles, being critical of the mainstream, I'm wondering what, if any, relationship there is between these actors who seem to obtain fame principally online and alternative culture as a whole in terms of, uh, you know, the social movements that emerged in the 60s and 70s, which did try to bring into question mainstream values. I, th- I think with it, with the possible exception of someone like David Icke, many of the prominent actors seem to be, uh, I guess, unrelated to others or um, expressing highly individualised content. I'm wondering if there's any kind of relationship between these current articulations and, and previous historical movements that, I guess, questioned mainstream values. If, is, that, is that something that you've tried to look at in your work? Yeah, absolutely. So I've actually just finished a book uh, on wellness culture and it's actually looking at how wellness culture has evolved, so primarily focusing on the American phenomenon and actually really touching on what you just discussed, how it really emerged from the counterculture and from the margins and became mainstream. I think it's a a really good question because there are similarities and, and very important differences as well. A lot of the countercultural movements that emerged in the 70s in particular were very critical of authority and for very good reason. They were resisting against very patriarchal, often very racist forms of authority. And this has been very well documented by people like Alondra Nelson in Body and Soul and others, particularly with regard to the civil rights movement, but also with regard to feminist movements, even the hippie movement. And and so you really see this rejection of institutionalised authority, which bears a lot of similarity to the out-health wellness influences today. But you also see this emphasis on body sovereignty. It's this really common thread that is consistent across all of these aspects. So with feminism, it's this emphasis on the right to bodily autonomy. And you see this with natural birth movements and and a lot of concerns with the interference of what they saw as this kind of male elite medical system at the time. But you also see it more broadly in terms of diagnosis and the anti-psychiatry movement around illness and disease. 
and then with the civil rights movement regarding you know this whole idea about about medical experimentation and about the right for medical authorities to intervene to exploit on the basis of somebody's race or class or gender so they're the two very common themes that you see on the one hand this rejection of the system as being racist or patriarchal or unequal and then this very big emphasis on on bodily autonomy. Stephanie you've written a little bit about the the involvement of uh, mothers in the anti-vax movement and particularly this misconception that a the anti-vax movement is uh, driven by mothers. Could you, could you tell us what you found when you went looking uh, into this issue? So basically the whole way this study emerged was really dating back to the start of the pandemic and following these key players in, in the out-health wellness space. And what became very prevalent was that people were being targeted on the basis of race, gender and and particularly mothers right so there's this very common idea in in the media in particular that mothers are highly responsible for anti-vaccination and you'll see a lot of pretty pejorative headlines so um, some examples we found were were references to whole food moms pinterest moms um, as this this kind of cliche of the suburban mother who thinks they know best and they you know they they reject authority. And, and look, I think it's fair to say that mothers are key players in the anti-vaccination movement insofar as many tend to be responsible for the decision about whether or not to vaccinate their children. But my colleague, Michael James Walsh, and I felt that what was unfair was that there was close to no attention on the way in which mothers were being strategically targeted by these key influences in the anti-vaccination movement. And so we followed them uh, really like for the last two years. And what we found is that there were these common tropes that these influencers were using to encourage vaccine hesitancy and vaccine refusal. And instead of focusing on parents in general, it was really targeted towards mothers. So it was this emphasis on, on protection, protecting your child from harm and not just the harm of toxins or chemicals or substances in vaccines these these kept changing over time as vaccines were modified but actually the harm imposed by these institutional structures so again you see this kind of common thread that we were just discussing with regard to the counterculture in the US and another another recurring theme that we found consistently particularly with Andrew Wakefield was this idea of the intuitive mother and mothers know best and trust your gut and and again, this was really prevalent, this idea about, about following your feelings over this kind of abstract technocratic knowledge from these authorities. And then finally, we noticed this recurring theme of the doting mother. And this was often a theme used by anti-vaccine influencers who were mothers themselves. And it was very difficult to actually identify many of these posts as anti-vaccine posts because often they were just depicted as mothers and their children having fun you know at home maybe they're making a cake or maybe they're about to go out for a meal or they're having a party and often the anti-vaccine content was not evident in the image or in the caption but actually you find the key acronyms associated with the anti-vaccination movement uh, buried in hashtags for example and uh yeah they, they were the three themes that we found so the big takeaway we had from that was that yes Mothers are, are primary actors insofar as they they do often bear the responsibility of the decision about whether or not to vaccinate their children. 
but they're no, by no means the only ones who are making that decision. And what we felt needed to be acknowledged more was the way in which mothers were strategically targeted by these anti-vax influencers in, in very clever ways. I mean, a lot of a lot of these posts were presenting letters to mothers or expectant mothers, you know, really saying, please don't vaccinate your children. I wish I had known, basically trying to make the point that their own child had been injured by vaccines. And, you know, there's no way of knowing whether or not this, these letters have been written by mothers or whether they're just being posted by someone who's writing them. Uh, I have to admit I found it pretty suspicious that some of these influencers had many letters addressed to them to mothers or to expected mothers rather than to the influencer themselves. But they're highly evocative, you know, especially for new parents. So, so yeah, that was what we were trying to highlight in that article. Influencer culture is, of course, often influenced by uh, money. Did you find that uh, this was also true of uh, conspiracy influencers? Uh, we've certainly seen Clive Palmer, for example, bankrolling a lot of conspiracists in Australia. I, I also recall there was a story that came out last year about some YouTubers who were approached by a mysterious PR firm to just spread misinformation about some, some specific vaccines. Mm, yeah, so I think there are a couple of ways that conspiracy is deliberately used for profit. So obviously, I mean, I'd preface this by saying you don't always know what somebody's intention is. You can only look for patterns and follow the money, as people say. But generally, when you look at influencers, they tend to be mostly influenced by financial gain. It's not the only reason. There's also social gain or political gain. But regarding conspiracy that you are asking about, in addition to encouraging people to you know, purchase their supplements or purchase their courses to discover esoteric knowledge, uh, in the research that I recently conducted with Alexia Maddox, tracing the ivermectin and the hydroxychloroquine uh, conspiracies, what we actually found was that influencers were playing a really key role in the dissemination of the conspiracies around ivermectin. So less so with hydroxychloroquine, but more so with ivermectin. And we were both pretty surprised to find that some very high-profile influencers were actually really using the conspiracy to profit not only from selling generic supplements, but actually by selling ivermectin for animal use, which was this really weird irony in that you saw a lot of the people who were trying to debunk Uh, the validity of ivermectin as a treatment for COVID, really reducing the drug to horse paste. And then these savvy influencers were then actually using that to sell ivermectin for animal use on their website. And it it was just all very bizarre. And that's still happening. (laughs) So I thought that was a really good example of how the conspiracy is not just used in an obvious way to sell supplements or you know, alternative treatments, but actually using the debunking process itself to build a community and actually encourage followers to buy ivermectin for animal use, even though you have repeated warnings by governments and various health authorities telling people not to use ivermectin for animal use. Stephanie, one of the things that struck me about the promotion of ivermectin and um, related drugs is uh, while there were, I guess, um, you know, influencers, uh, marginal or fringe figures 
promoting them. Uh, it was also the case that uh, you had the President of the United States, uh, various, uh, you know, very influential figures uh, adopting these ideas and promoting them in, in some way. So I'm wondering if you can comment on the, the political uh, utility of promoting these sorts of fake cures. And I wonder to what extent that, to the, to the extent that this happened, was it useful in terms of covering up failings of administrations in the United States and Brazil and elsewhere to actually deal effectively uh, with the pandemic and responding to it in a you know, effective manner? Yeah, yeah. So you're absolutely right. There were key political figures who were instrumental, uh, especially in the hydroxychloroquine conspiracy. So in that same paper that I was just mentioning that I co-authored with Alexia Maddox, we actually compared the conspiracies and how ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine were amplified during the pandemic. And what we found uh, was that with hydroxychloroquine, it was politicised much earlier. So dating back to March you actually had key political figures such as former President Donald Trump, uh, also many members in his team. So his son was promoting it as well. You also had uh, Giuliani promoting it. And do you remember that group, America's Frontline Doctors, who were a conservative group in that viral video? I'm not sure if you saw it, that, that circulated across social media. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so it became, you know, hydroxychloroquine as a drug embroiled in in political conspiracy very early on. And that last video that I was alluding to, the the one with uh, Stella Emanuel featuring America's Frontline Doctors, was really important because that was the shift from seeing merely hype around uh, hydroxychloroquine, which you could read conspiracy into, to really bringing the whole conspiracy together because her argument was that we have an effective cure but it's being suppressed and then you know, that was retreated by Trump and various political figures as a sign of endorsement and so that's when the the conspiracy was really cemented but actually it was embroiled in in politics really from March. Uh, ivermectin was quite different insofar as the conspiracy emerged much later it was actually after Corey gave evidence at the end in December, uh, and it was really more throughout 2021 that the conspiracy evolved. And there were some political figures involved in that, but it was actually more more associated with alternative influences, whereas Trump and Bolsonaro from Brazil, as you mentioned, were actually key figures using hydroxychloroquine, you know, presumably to, to on, on the one hand, you could say cover up failures. On the other hand, I think... People became very accustomed to Trump saying everything's going to be okay, even before there were failures and and coronavirus had really just emerged as this global crisis. Quite early on, he was trying to say everything is going to be okay. So I think many people were unsurprised by the fact that he was latching onto a treatment very early on because it really maintained this narrative that he was in charge, he was in control, and then once failures were apparent, he could maintain that. He did have the best words. So anyway. Game changer, I think he said. <laughs> Stephanie, it seems that um, in terms of the, the world of uh, influences and so on, there's a strong aesthetic dimension to their productions that, that appeal on a kind of um, emotional level or, or connect in a particular way. At the same time, you've, you've made reference to and written a little bit about 
the intellectual dark web or the so-called intellectual dark web and what role it plays in this kind of um, context. I'm, I'm wondering if you could just uh, talk a little bit about that and, and how uh, uh, members of the, the so-called IDW relate to conspiracy in the context of uh, COVID and so on. What's interesting is that when you look at the IDW and in particular look at the followers of those key members and compare them to, say, you know, wellness influencers or lifestyle influencers, they tend to be quite different demographics on the outside. You know, there is some crossover, but for the most part they do seem quite different. But actually the techniques that a lot of these influencers use to establish a degree not only of influence but intimacy with their followers is quite similar. And what you see there on the one hand is this emphasis on authenticity, right? Like we are authentic voices, we're not, um, we're not puppets for, you know, the mainstream media or their MSM as they like to pejoratively describe it by. Um, and then what they'll often do as well is try to, in addition to emphasising how authentic they are, they will emphasise their autonomy from not only the media but broader political structures, right? And this is central to even the definition of the IDW, but it is also central to lifestyle and wellness influences. And the third aspect that they really use as a technique in order to cultivate not only trust but intimacy with their followers is this idea of being accessible, right? So when you listen to Brett or Eric uh, Weinstein, you'll often see very similar language, these kind of informal modes of address, uh, talking to their community as though they're friends, as though they're equals, as though they are just like them. And this is a really common technique. It's often referred to as micro-celebrity where people will use these informal modes of address or they will share personal anecdotes. They will um, often share videos or imagery, give this impression of backstage access to their lives. And really what this does is cultivate a degree of intimacy and trust and foster a sense of community, you know, being, being on this common mission. And that's where I really see a, a a very significant crossover between these these two spaces. Stephanie, a lot of influencers probably lead uh, somewhat privileged lifestyles that might have allowed them to outrun the virus for a little bit longer than, you know, a lot of working people. Uh, but ev- eventually it comes for us all. Did you, Have you seen any evidence that uh, actually catching the virus has an impact on how influencers approach the question of COVID? Honestly, I'm really surprised that actually I found the opposite to be true. So, you know, I've been following this space for a couple of years now and somebody called David Steele, who was actually quite prominent in in perpetuating conspiracies, really a big COVID denialist uh, in America and, and quite close with Sasha Stone, who I followed in that article that we were talking about earlier, he actually passed away from COVID and, you know, as I mentioned, COVID denialist. And I was really intrigued to see what would happen afterwards by those people who were touring around America with him and, and spreading this type of COVID denialism. And actually I saw no evidence that it changed their views. If anything, it, it just encouraged them to keep going. And, and I think it really highlights that 
as with many conspiracies, you're not going to change someone's mind with evidence. And actually, these belief systems and, and ideologies are much more entrenched. And yeah, so I haven't I haven't actually seen seen any evidence at all. I think I think when people have COVID and it's mild, it actually convinces them more that this is just an example of government overreach and gives people more conviction in their beliefs. But unfortunately, when people do pass away, I haven't seen any evidence at all of people changing their minds. Well, Stephanie, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, if people want to find Stephanie online, she's on Twitter at Dr. S.A. Baker. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. mob it's time to get back to the community so get your proof of vaccination ready get started by creating a mygov account if you don't already have one and linking your medicare number then add your covid19 digital certificate to the service victoria app now you're ready to go your covid19 digital certificate is your ticket let's show it with kindness to the businesses we visit and the victorians who run them visit coronavirus.vic.gov.au forward slash vaxproof authorized by the victorian government melbourne a 3CR supporter.